Well, good morning, everyone. So good to see all of you, your bright, smiley faces. Let's open our Bibles. We're going to be in the book of Matthew. We're taking a detour from Elijah. Uh, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, which is found in the back third of the scriptures. And we're in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, which is verses 14 to 30. And we will be applying this this morning to this idea of church planting. So let's begin reading. Verse 14, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each, each according to his ability. Then he went away. So let's just pause and understand a little bit about the context of this story. First, I, I want you to understand that these servants are not just agricultural workers. They're, they're competent individuals. They were accountants. Some of them could be as high up as a, a treasurer of a kingdom. So these are business-savvy types. And as the text is talking about the amount of money that this, this master has entrusted to these servants, you have to understand this is likely a large portion of his total net worth. Okay, so we're talking about the highest level of trust to these servants. Now we pick up verse 16. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set over you much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had had the two talents came forward saying, Master, uh, you delivered to me two talents here. I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set over you much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And so I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But the master answered him, You wicked and slothful servants. You knew what, that I reap where I have not sown and, and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
So to get you into the context of Matthew 25, the parable, the parable of the talents, we are in the middle of what is called Jesus's Olivet Discourse. This is Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And in this teaching, he's covering the events coming up to the end times and also the final judgment or the judgment that will happen just before people are brought into the millennial kingdom. Now, in, in verses 40 and 41, we, we get the sense that the end times, so the rapture of the church and then the great tribulation, will come about quite unexpectedly. It, it tells us in, in verses 40 and 41 that two people will be in a field, one will be taken, one left, two women grinding at the mill, one taken, one left. And the advice that Jesus gives to his disciples because of this imminent return, this sudden return, is stay awake. Keep your eyes open. Keep about the activity of the work that I've entrusted to you. In fact, he asks this question in verse 40, Five of chapter 24, he says, who then is the faithful and wise servant? And then he goes to tell three parables, one of a wicked servant, one of ten bridesmaids, and then here the parable of the talent. The big idea of all of these parables is very similar, but let me give you the big idea of the parable of the talents. Jesus expects his disciples to be industrious and faithful while we are waiting for his return. So let me say that one more time. Jesus expects you, if you've placed your faith in him, if you're his disciple, to be industrious and faithful while you are waiting for his return. Now, D.A. Carson makes this very valid point when it comes to applying this parable. He says, attempts to identify the talents with spiritual gifts, the law, natural endowments, the gospel, whatever else, if you kind of focus it on one single thing, he says that leads to a narrowing of the parable with which Jesus would have been uncomfortable. Perhaps he chose talent symbolism because of its capacity for varied application. And so, this morning, I'm going to take the lane of one of the varied applications that you can draw from this parable. In fact, often when you think of the parable of the talents, we, we tend to think of it in a very individualistic sense. What is Jesus going to think of my individual activity and work? But I want us to apply it corporately today. So corporately means how he evaluates us as a church so what if we looked at the mission of the local church through the lens of the parable of the talents? Well, let's start with thinking about that third servant. And I would suggest to you that this is the local church that buries the mission. Let's get back into his thought process. The, the third servant, he goes, he digs a hole, he buries the talent in the ground. Now, this guy... He's pretty savvy. He, he knows that, you know, you don't just go out and make money grow on trees. He understands that there is risk involved with taking money and capital and trying to grow it. When you invest in the stock market, I hope everyone understands this, it is not guaranteed at all 
that you will get a return on your investment. And sometimes that money even what? Shrinks. So this guy thinks to himself, it's too risky to invest. And he also knows that it's too inconvenient. Has anyone ever started their own business in the room? Anyone? Don't be, don't be shy, a couple of you, okay? It was pretty easy, wasn't it? It didn't require any work. You didn't lose any sleep. It was, it was just pretty simple. No, we know that starting a business requires lots of elbow grease. And so this guy obviously did not want to engage in that sort of activity. It was also, though, this decision he makes, a complete act of disobedience, a complete disregard for what the master had asked him to do, an insult even to the master. In fact, as he's giving his lame excuse, he makes this like backhanded compliment to the master. You see that in the text in verses 24 and 25. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. I was scared. I went and hid the talent in the ground. Here, you have what's yours. Now, that word hard in the Greek text could be translated as strict, harsh, cruel, merciless. Do you know that some of us here today actually think of God in those terms? We, we, we think of him as this cosmic task master that he, we don't see that God's actually entrusting things to us and, and honoring us with responsibility. Instead, we, we think that he's, he's looking over us and, and micromanaging our lives and just waiting for us to mess up. And that's exactly what this servant did. He imagines his master is unju- unjust and capricious. He suggests that he's the kind of guy that if if someone planted a field over there, well, he'd go over and take their stuff. And perhaps, perhaps he's also a little salty, as we say here in Cape Cod. A little salty that, you know, that guy over there on my right got five talents and the one over there got two. And for whatever reason, I only got one. Now, Never mind the fact that one talent is a small fortune. It's the principle of the matter, right? Well, here's the thing. By avoiding his responsibilities, the servant betrayed his lack of love for his master. He didn't understand who his master was. He didn't love his master. And I want to submit to you this morning that local churches can fall into this same trap. Jesus, in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, 2 and 3, is having conversations with seven local churches, and he has a conversation with the church of Ephesus. And he says to them, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you first did. Now, what, what was the first love like with this church of Ephesus? I want to submit to you this morning that that was a church on mission when they first started off. They understood the Great Commission. They were making disciples. They were applying 
Paul's principle in Ephesians 4.12 where the leadership of the church is equipping the saints for the work of the ministry and the total body is being built up. This is the type of place that is worshiping, being transformed on mission. And, and, and you know what happens when a church does those things? All kinds of good things. People growing hot worship for God on Sunday mornings, people loving one another, going into their communities and reaching the lost. That's what this church was doing. They were being the church. But then some 30 to 40 years later, well, the church decided to dig a hole and to put the mission in that hole and then to cover it up. They didn't do it intentionally. It just... You know, spiritual entropy sets in. The church starts thinking about the church's own individual needs. All the money in the budget starts going to events, programs, activities, food for the people within the church. And and no longer is the church out there in the community reaching people for Christ. In fact, when you pull the membership, the average response to this question, when was the last time you shared Jesus with someone, was number D, or letter D, I don't know. I have no clue. Whenever they would talk about mission in the church, it was mission that happened in days gone by. Not mission that's happening right now in the present. It reminds me of a parable. There was a young guy, he was in his 20s, and he became a Christian. He started attending church, and, and God was radically working in his life. He, he attended that church for several Sundays. He was baptized, and then he heard that this church business meeting was coming, and he was excited about it. Can you imagine? And so he shows up to this business meeting, and, and to put it in his words, he was expecting for the church to come together to plot the downfall of Satan. Boy, was he surprised. You want to know what the big topic on the agenda was that morning? What type of toilet paper the church should be using? And I'll give you a minute to let that one sink in. You see... Some churches just exist. They've lost their first love. They bury the mission. The church becomes like a vehicle without an engine. And I want to submit to you this morning that the mission of the church is the engine of the church. If you're going to equate mission to anything, it is an engine. It it, it propels a church forward. It it, it is the energy that, that moves the church in the direction that Jesus wants the church to go. Now, now many people engage in church shopping or church looking around or whatever you want to call it. I know there's a, a derogatory term. I won't use it this morning. But as they're going around, they make a big mistake as they're inspecting the vehicle. Fatal error. They don't pop open the hood and check if there's an engine in the vehicle. No, they walk around the car, they kick the tires, they're like, oh, this thing has all these power features, power steering, power windows, power everything, AC, and there's this rear entertainment system for my kids. Isn't that incredible? Well, let me just say this. You want a vehicle with an engine. It's got to have it. 
What good is a vehicle without an engine? Give me any vehicle whatsoever with an engine, whether it be, you know, an old beater or even a Prius over a luxury sedan that's sitting on the side of the road. You're sitting there, of course, in comfort, but everyone's driving past you. You're going nowhere. You see, how do you know if a church has an engine? Well, they're following the Great Commission. They're going and they're making disciples. There's expectations that every member participate in the mission, not just the staff, not just the elders of the church, and, and not just those like, you know, loony, like really happy people about Jesus that come to the church. No, everybody is involved in the mission. The believers are generous towards the mission. The budget's healthy. Yeah, they're spending, of course, on the, the needs of the church community, but they're also taking those resources and, and spending them to reach the lost and sending missionaries, acts of benevolence within the community. They're, they're not creating their program structure around entertainment. They're creating it around discipleship. You, you hear all kinds of fun stories of average Joe members who have had spiritual conversations, who have reached someone for Christ, who are walking alongside of that person. You see, when the, the mission, when the engine is present, the church moves. It goes in the direction that it's supposed to do. It's not burying the resources while it lazily waits for Jesus to return. And I want to take an even deeper look at that, that specific topic. Because I look at that first and second servant, and I see that as being like a church that is stewarding the mission. Let's take a little more glance at, at this church or at these two servants. Matthew 25 tells us that the first and second servant put their, the resources that they were entrusted with, look at verse 16, to work at once. I want you to underline that, at once. That is probably the most important phrase in all of this. The point is that the good servants felt responsible for their assignment, and they went to work without delay. They start setting up businesses. They're working with the capital and they're making it grow. Now, when the master returns, you can hear the enthusiasm in their voice. The five talent guy says, look, master, I've taken those five talents and I've grown them to five more talents. Likewise, the two talent individual says the same thing. I did the best that I could. I didn't even think that I would do anything with these two talents, but it's grown. I love how this commentator captures the scene. He says, the men's eyes are sparkling. They're, they're bubbling over with enthusiasm, thoroughly thrilled. And as it were, they invite the master to start counting. You see, everything that is done is done with the orientation of pleasing the master. At verse 20, the, the verb used in that passage, brought. In ancient Greek, it was often used as a verb to describe acts of sacrifice to God. These servants loved their master, 
And they showed that love. They demonstrated that love through the work. Believer, you can do the same. You can show God that you love Him through taking responsibility, through applying your hand to the work. Now, notice two additional observations. First, the master does not treat the servant who earned more better than the one who earned less. God doesn't evaluate you on the quantity, but on the quality of your life. And notice the reward. The reward is twofold. First, it's increased responsibility. If, if you want, as a believer, to, to have an expanded influence, an expanded ministry, you have to be faithful in the small things first, and then God adds more to your plate. And that's what we see with both of these servants. The second thing, though, I love is that the servants receive joy. Now, do you want to experience real joy in your Christian walk? I, I believe that that is an innate desire in everyone. That you were born, you were instilled with a desire to want to be happy, to feel real purpose in your world. What the Bible talks about is joy. The scripture time and again says this, you, you can't experience that in its fullness unless you are engaging in the good work that God has given you in this world and following him and, and aligning your life with his purposes. In, in John 15, Jesus says this, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be full. I love that. I love the fact that God says that's at your disposal. That's yours for the taking. You can experience the fullness, the vitality that I have for you. Now let's take that, those thoughts and let's apply them to the local church. I want to suggest this. That first and second servant churches are entrepreneurial with the mission. So they skillfully invest the resources of the kingdom in the places that bear the most fruit, advance the gospel. That they reach into those places where Jesus is not known, not seen, not savored. And, and just as I must one day stand before Jesus and, and give an individual account for my life, I also look at the scriptures and I come to the conclusion that we will also stand before Jesus in that same moment and give a corporate account for what we did as a church, for the mission that we engaged in together. Now, how do I see that? Well, again, I go back to Revelation 2 and 3. And you see in that passage, Jesus addressing churches corporately. So he says to that church in Ephesus, he says, you have abandoned your first love. I'm going to remove your lampstand unless you get back into the work. Which leads me to this point, that Jesus cares as much about how you live corporately as he does to how you live individually. I'm going to say that one more time. If you're a note taker, write this one down. Jesus cares as much about how you live 
corporately as he does how you live individually, which begs the question, if you're not deeply involved in a local church, how can you possibly give an account for your participation in the corporate mission of the church? I suspect that any answer we give to the contrary of what he's asked us to do will be viewed as just as lame and as, as an excuse as that servant who said, yeah, you know, I thought you were kind of hard and I buried the treasure. I don't want to stand before him and say that. I want to say, Lord, you gave me two talents and I did the best I could. And, and, I, and I've, I've grown that capital to two more for you. So then, the real question, if, if we can all come around that and agree upon that, that there is a, a corporate expectation, the real question is, how can we best steward the mission of the local church? Remember, he's expecting us to be entrepreneurial. He wants us to go into those places where Jesus is not known, not seen, not savored, and bring the gospel there. Well, Timothy Keller suggests that the best investment we can make is to invest in church planting. He says this, the vigorous continual planting of new congregations is the single most crucial strategy for one, the numerical growth of the body of Christ in a city, and two, the continual corporate renewal and revival of the existing churches in a city. He goes on, nothing else, not crusades, Outreach programs, parachurch ministries, growing megachurches, congregational consulting, nor church renewal processes will have the consistent impact of dynamic, extensive church planting. This is an eyebrow-raising statement, but to those who have done any study at all, it's not even controversial. Now, why is this the case? Well, I want to begin with just the plain sense of the Bible. Let's start there, right? We're a Bible-believing church. We should probably start there. And as you look at the Scriptures, you become aware as you look at the book of Acts, as you look at the New Testament, that the local church is Jesus' missional engine for advancing the gospel. It's his plan A. And he really doesn't demonstrate any kind of plan B. It's all about the local church. If you want to look more at Scripture, you, you can look at Matthew 16, 18 on your own time. You can go look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 and onward. You can look at 1 Timothy 3.15. Over and over again in the Bible, the church is the missional outposts of Jesus' kingdom. So as you look at Scripture, as you study theology, all biblical Christians must walk away with a, it's called a high ecclesiology. Okay, ecclesiology means the study of the church. It's a theological term. It just simply means that you have to have a high view of the local church. Daniel Darling captures this high view. He says, I believe the church is the most powerful institution in the world the most powerful catalyst for social change, with the most powerful message in existence because the church is the place where God's spirit most powerfully dwells. 
That's why my wife and I, Katie, we give a tithe to the local church, 10% of our income. We invest in the local church first because as we look at Scripture, we really believe that the Bible commands us to do that. But secondly, from a financial stewardship perspective, I've come to this conclusion that my first and most significant investment should be to the local church that I attend. Why is that? Well, the local church that I attend knows me. They know Katie. They know my kids. You guys know my kids' names. You guys care for us. And we get the pleasure of caring for you. And we use our spiritual gifts to invest in the lives of one another. It's also my mission outpost. My mission outpost is not in California. It's right here on Cape Cod. And and this is the place where God's called me to advance his kingdom here on Cape Cod, then in this region called New England, and then on to the ends of the earth. So here's the thing. Here's another stewardship principle. The wise steward knows this, that I first must, must take care of the basic needs of my family before I can be any good to other families. It's just true. If my family is wasting away or if the roof is collapsing upon my family, how can I be generous in giving to others outside? Once I've taken care of those basic needs, once I have the basic vitality and energy to move, then I can go help others. So let's go back to church planting. Why new churches? Aren't there plenty of churches Well, I want to give you four basic reasons why church planting is so crucial. First, new churches best reach new generations, new residents, new people groups. That's why I love the fact that you, the membership of OBC, voted to support Trey and Lauren Warren and their mission there in the St. Cloud Harmony area in Florida. You know, here's a, here's a hard truth, that millennials are walking away from the church, and younger generations are walking away from the church. In fact, if you're going to ask how are they growing spiritually, uh, Pew Research would identify that they're the fastest cross-section in the country growing in the li- religious category called N-O-N-E, none meaning that they have no religious affiliation, meaning there's no reason whatsoever why they would ever walk into a church, attend a service. They're just not going to find their way into that. So what does that mean? It means we need new, fresh bodies of Christ with an ambition and a desire in their heart and a passion to go out to them and reach them. And, And church plants are doing a great job of that right now. I want you to see second. New churches best reach the unchurched, period. There's not even a debate on that. Denominational studies have confirmed that the average new church gains most of its membership, 60 to 80% of its membership from unchurched people. Whereas a church that's existed for 10 to 15 years, if that church is growing, 80 to 90% of that growth comes from what is called transfer growth. That person's come from another local church, and they're now attending this one. Third reason, there is a need for new churches because the population is growing at a rate exponentially faster 
then we are currently starting new churches. And and if you poll people in America, less than 18% of Americans attend church on a given week. Now, here's the thing. You could look at that and become self-defeated. You'd say, ah, boy, I miss the old days. I miss those days when the church was just bursting out at the seams, people were attending in droves, or maybe even come a little cynical. It's never going to get better. Remember, Jesus wants his servants to be entrepreneurial. He wants you to see the potential. And as you look at polling, you also come to understand that 79% of Americans indicate that if you were to ask them to have a spiritual conversation, they would have a spiritual conversation with you. And did you know that 25% of Americans indicate that if you just simply said, would you like to come to church with me? They'd say, yeah. Now that, that's potential right there. And you know who is really, really good at that? New churches. They get out there. They talk to people. They, they feel the, the need and the desire to reach people outside the walls of the church, which sadly, only 4% of churches in this country are reproducing in that way right now. So we've got to get radically entrepreneurial for the kingdom. And here's the fourth thought. The fourth thought is that it's good for the church, right? Churches involved in church planting are being continually revitalized. It's life-giving. Anytime someone walks from death to life, becomes a, a believer in Jesus Christ, it's so life-giving for the church. It's, it's like watching a, a new baby come into a family. You know what it's like when that new baby first comes into the family? It completely changes the dynamic. It disrupts things, but, but in a good way. Katie and I experienced this seven years ago. We as a family, as a husband and wife, were saying to ourselves, you know, we think we're like two-kid kind of parents. Because <laughs> when you have that third or fourth, then you just really open yourself up to mutiny and mob rule, you know? So let's just keep things within our control. But God always has better ideas than we do. And, and he blessed us with Isaac. Isaac, the name, as you know from the scriptures, means laughter. And that boy has brought a lot of laughter into our house. I mean, he's caring. He's affectionate. He is fearless. He will talk to anyone. I mean, the bear knows no stranger. And we're a better family because of it. Babies make the house better. And so do babies in the church. Have you ever felt that excitement when that that person walked through the doors the first time and maybe they heard the gospel preached in church or maybe a member had a coffee with them and, and they became aware of the grace of God and that they could have the grace of God and they got all excited about it and they start going around the church and telling people, I just placed my faith in Jesus. I'm so excited about this. And then they're in Bible study and they have these aha moments like the first time they're reading through the Gospels. Like, you see this parable right here? This parable is awesome. It changes everything. Now, imagine that effect multiplied. Not just 10 people or 
dozens of people from what one local church could do, but when local churches are planting local churches, hundreds and hundreds of people becoming like little Isaacs for churches, bringing in laughter, bringing in vitality, bringing in life. But here's the thing. We've got to be about this church. We've got to believe in it. Because then we can come to Jesus and say, Jesus, you gave us two talents. Here's the two more. And we will be so happy as we give him that report. Now, having said all of that, church planting is definitely something we need to be involved in, but we can't, like, delegate the mission away, <laughs> okay? If we invest our resources and churches are being planted and we say to ourselves, you know, we're kind of the frozen chosen of New England and we're just going to sit in church and, and we'll wait for Jesus to return. No, <laughs> we don't do it like that. So I have a summer mission activity for you, okay? And I would like you guys to take up a challenge with me. Is everyone on board with that? I am handing you right now, are you ready? An invisible talent. Take it. It's coming to you right now. All right, and I want you to put that talent to work this summer. So here's what you can do over the next 30 days. Three things. First, I want you to identify. Is there someone that God's put on your heart is there a face in your mind of an individual that is in your sphere of influence that you know that you care about? I want you to make a private commitment in your heart right now and say to yourself, if God opens the door, if he provides the opportunity, I'll tell them about Jesus. And then I want you to pray for them. Not just every once in a while, but daily. And look for that opening. Secondly, I want you to initiate, and this involves more than just getting a face in your head, but it involves going across your yard, going across the street, going across the town, going to places where you normally wouldn't go for the sake of the gospel. The other day, I had a, a wonderful dinner with Harry and Muriel, and at the end of our, our time together, uh, the waitress came up and handed us the bill, and, and Harry handed her a track, and he said, did you know that there is a God in heaven who loves you. And you know what was incredible? God had already been working on that heart. She opened up her little booklet and, and she pulled out this track that she had in there already. And she said, someone gave this to me, someone really special to me. And I've been thinking about this a lot. And, and now you're giving me this too? Isn't that incredible? That's how God works. And finally, I want you to invite this involves being courageous. This involves putting a little bit of that relational capital on the line with that friend that you've been investing time with. Invite them to church. Maybe they're in that 25%. Maybe they'd come with you. And if they do, sit with them. Invite them to lunch afterwards and say, what did you think about what we talked about this morning? Church, we do have a great Lord, and he's worthy of our love and our affection, and we want to be responsible with everything, every entrustment that he's given us. So that's our challenge this summer, and I know you guys, I know you can do it. So let's bow our heads and pray. Lord Jesus, 
In the best way we know how, we commit ourselves to this task. We're so grateful that you are a good master who entrusts responsibility to your people. Uh, Lord, you believe in us. You know what we can do, and you know the spirit who indwells us. In your name we pray, amen.